0: Any day, Richard. <laughs> good morning, everyone. It's uh, <laughs> couldn't resist. It's uh, it's certainly good to be back with you. We had a a, a great week up in, in Toronto with family. I was uh, I was a little disappointed while there that no one picked up on my Texas accent. I thought. I thought after a year I would at least have some sort of accent going. I did have opportunity to use the word foyer on one occasion, which uh, which generated a half-hour discussion on the words etymology, so that was, that was fascinating. But it's good to be back, it's good to be home, and it's good to be with you uh, this Lord's Day. We began singing uh, a few moments ago with these words, there's a treasure great in beauty, Did you catch that? There's a treasure great in beauty. And then we concluded singing with the words, You are beautiful beyond description. Uh, That is our subject this morning. That is our theme, uh, the beauty, uh, the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In particular, uh, Christ's beauty in the midst of betrayal. We read of this beauty, we read of this incident in John chapter 18 and I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning as we consider together the first 12 verses of John chapter 18, Christ's beauty, beauty in the midst of betrayal. With these verses, we enter the third section in John's gospel account. You may well remember that in that first section, chapters 2 through 12, John gives us a description of Christ's public ministry. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That sums up somewhat concisely the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. And then in chapters 13 through 17, John gives us a description of Christ's private ministry. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. With chapter 18, we enter into the third section, and it carries through to chapter 20. And so this is where we are this morning, embarking on our study of this third major section in John's gospel account. And I invite you to follow along as I read the first 12 verses for us. When Jesus had spoken these words, what words? Well, everything that was said in chapter 17, remember his high priestly prayer. He went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. That's a significant statement. We'll get to it in a moment. Where there was a garden in which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. And struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now, go with me for a moment. When we think of this third section in John's Gospel account, chapters 18, 19 and 20, uh, what is primarily in view is Christ's passion, uh, what we call Christ's suffering. All John gives us in these chapters is a narrative. He explains the events as they unfold culminating in the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus for a theological commentary for the theological significance of this narrative. We must go to the epistles. Always important to keep that in mind, that paradigm in view in the Gospels. We have the narrative in the Gospels. We're given the details of what happened in the epistles. We have the commentary on the gospel narratives. And so when we go to the epistles, Paul's epistles in particular, we discover that what is happening in the passion that John describes for us in these chapters is that Christ offers up himself as a sacrifice for his people. Christ sums it up wonderfully. And I think we can take this statement and we can write it over top of chapters 18 and 19 and 20. It's the statement at the end of verse 11 where he says to Peter, he asks him a question. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? That's what happens in these chapters. The Lord Jesus drinks this cup. What is it? In Scripture, there are three cups. You can go back to a couple of the Psalms And you will read of the cup of salvation. You can go to the book of Jeremiah. I think it's chapter 6 or 7. And there we read of the cup of consolation. But there is thirdly in Scripture, and this is what is in view in these chapters, the cup of tribulation. Listen, for example, to these words in Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord There is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It is the cup of God's wrath and that is the cup that the father had given to the son And it is the cup, the cup of God's wrath that Christ drinks to the full and which John describes for us, describes in such vivid language in this third section, chapters 18, 19 and 20. Now, I know as well as most of you know that when we speak of God's wrath, people get a little antsy. That may be an understatement. People get downright livid at times when we speak of God's wrath. Uh, They don't mind hearing about God's love. They enjoy hearing about God's mercy, God's grace, God's faithfulness. But when we begin to speak about the wrath of God, the anger of God, uh, people grow extremely uncomfortable. There was a time, there was a time, I, I wasn't around for it, but there was a time not that long ago when, when you didn't have to convince people of God's wrath. You didn't have to convince people that God was angry with them. You had to convince them that God loved them. Uh, we have moved to the other end in our day. Uh, we live in a day in which you don't need to convince anyone that God loves them. They presume he does. Why wouldn't he? But the notion that God is angry with them, uh, the concept of God's wrath, uh, this is foreign to the thinking of a lot of people. There are numerous reasons for it. I think one of the major reasons for it, causes of it, is the simple fact that when we speak about God's wrath, when we use that word, W-R-A-T-H, wrath, It conjures up all sorts of images in people's minds. And what they do, what we do at times, is we we make the mistake of confusing God's wrath with our wrath. A man's anger with God's anger. Jonathan Edwards wrote a great deal about this in his book, A Charity and Its Fruits. And he basically points to four ways in which this confusion takes form. Uh, four false ideas uh, surrounding God's wrath, which arise from our own experience of anger and wrath in, in our lives and in the lives of others. Let me share these with you quickly. The first is this. Uh, Jonathan Edwards makes the point that that our wrath, our anger is is often sinful in its nature, in its nature. What he means by that is simply this. Our anger is usually, usually, not always, but more often than not, an expression of pride, an expression of frustration, an expression of impatience. And so we're stuck in traffic on Highway 35 or 30 or 20 or wherever, and the cars aren't moving anywhere, and we begin to pound on the steering wheel. We become frustrated, and therefore we become Angry. Our kids are particularly hyper one afternoon. And our impatience, our patience reaches the boiling point and it spills over, and we express that impatience and frustration in anger. Or we're in the checkout line in Walmart, we're 10th in line, we finally make it to second in line, and the register, for whatever reason, is no longer working. And we need to go over to another register where the line is already 12, 13 people long. And we become angry, livid, that this is out of our control. Please, please, please. God's wrath is not like that. That is our anger. Which, more often than not, is simply sinful. Because it is an expression of pride. It is a manifestation of frustration. It is a manifestation of impatience, and so we err. We err if we think of, of, of this sort of expression of impatience when we think of God's wrath. And Jonathan Edwards he says secondly that we must remember that man's anger is not only sinful in its nature; it is sinful in its occasion. In its occasion, what he means by that is simply this: uh, oftentimes the cause of our anger is the result of misjudgment. We jump to a conclusion, and as a result of that conclusion, we snap. We lose it. Somebody says something, or somebody does something, or we hear that somebody said something, or hear that somebody did something, and without understanding exactly what's going on, Without knowing all the facts, without having dotted all our I's and crossed all our T's, we jump to a conclusion based on misinformation, we misjudge the situation, and we express it in anger. Now, years ago, a friend of mine was camping up in Algonquin Park, which is in uh, central Ontario, a huge provincial park. And he was out there with his family, and they, found, they canoed into the park, found their campsite, set up the tents, and uh, pitched camp had a canoe with them, and went out for a nice, calm, quiet, leisurely canoe on the lake, returned to discover that their cooler was gone. All of the food that they brought with them for the weekend in this cooler, gone. He had noticed a family with teenagers at an adjacent campsite. He jumped to the conclusion that those teenagers must have been meddling in their stuff and walked off and helped themselves to that cooler. And so without a moment's hesitation, without thinking, he bolted through the woods and he heard them shaking or he thought it was them shaking this cooler veered through the to the right through the dense woods. What did he discover? Yes, his cooler, but no teenagers, a black bear. He had jumped to a conclusion. He had misjudged a situation. And as a result, he had lost his temper. Probably more often than we care to admit that that is at the root of our anger. But we need to understand that God's anger, God's wrath is not like that. God's wrath is based on perfect judgment. God's wrath is based on perfect discernment. It is not whimsical in the least way. And Jonathan Edwards says thirdly, That we often, we often err when it comes to God's wrath because we fail to remember that our wrath, our anger, our experiences with anger are sinful in their objective. Usually, again, probably, more often than we would want to publicly admit, uh, our anger is simply an excuse to vent. It doesn't help one iota in the resolution of the problem. It doesn't uh, help to resolve the situation. It doesn't bring any rational thought to bear on the circumstances. It is simply an excuse to let rip. And so, again, we were just in Toronto, and you, and you all heard about that, the, 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 the terrorist plot there on December 25th and how that's affected flights into the United States And so we flew into Canada, no problem. But those trying to fly out of Toronto to the States, flights were cancelled, the lines were backed up, backed up, eight, nine, ten hours. The security checks were heightened and people were livid. I mean, losing it, throwing things here, there, and everywhere. How does that resolve anything? It doesn't. It is simply irrational. It is a loss of self-control simply an excuse to vent. God's anger is not like that. Jonathan Edwards says, fourthly, we must remember that our anger is often sinful in its measure. It is out of proportion, out of all proportion to its cause. In other words, we go overboard. But God's wrath is not like that. Listen to the words of the psalmist. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So please, friend, please, please, please. When you hear that expression, God's wrath, you and I, we must put out of our minds our sinful experiences and expressions of anger and wrath And understand that they have nothing whatsoever to do with God's wrath. John Murray provides a succinct, helpful, wonderful definition of the wrath of God. He he expresses it as follows. God's wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Again. God's wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. And so it is a settled reasoned response on the part of God whose righteousness and holiness are offended by sinners. His anger, his wrath is toward those who... Who have sinned so grotesquely against him. That is the essence of what is going on in this third section of of John chapters 18, 19 and 20. We have God's wrath falling upon the Lord Jesus. Now, not falling upon the Lord Jesus because he has violated God's holiness but falling upon the Lord Jesus because He bears the sin of sinners like you and me. That is the cup. That is the cup for which Christ came, the cup which He drinks to the full. And which John describes here beginning in these verses with His betrayal, culminating in His crucifixion. And there at Calvary's cross, Him drinking this cup, to the brim full with the wine of God's wrath, his anger, his justice against sinners. Please, friend, understand this. It is, it is pivotal that you understand this. You must deal with the wrath of God. You must. None of us can avoid God's wrath. There is a day of reckoning. When we all must reckon with an offended God, a God whose holiness we have trampled on repeatedly, a God who is exceedingly angry with sinners, there is a day of reckoning. Understand this. It is either at Calvary's cross or it is when you stand before him covered in your own mire and grime and sinfulness. And feel the full weight of his fury. It is either or. We either have God's wrath appeased and satisfied in Christ at Calvary's cross. And have this hope and assurance of God's mercy. Or we stand bare and naked before the one whose eyes are like a burning fire. Who will lay bare before us not only every deed we have ever committed in this life, but every thought we have ever had. Every feeling that has ever entered our hearts. And the cry, what will be the charge that will be written above them all, is rebel, sinner, unholy. For the sinner who enters into eternity outside of Christ... They will experience the wrath of God for that that eternity, for that time without limit. And so what John, the road he takes us down here and which Paul and Peter develop in such intricate detail is that there is a cross. There is a day of reckoning that has already occurred. There is a cup which Christ has already drank. And for those who draw near those who rest in the Lord Jesus, for those who repent of their sins, for those who believe in Christ and close with Christ, there is now no condemnation. The wrath is gone and the loving kindness is limitless. The grace and mercy are boundless. The love of God knows no measure And so what we're entering into, yes, wonderful story, narrative. As we see the Savior, his eyes fixed on the cross. and Bear in mind the great and weighty theological significance of what is going on. It's a road that Christ himself leads us down with those words in verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, what we were going to do with these verses, as I glance at my watch, is we're going to focus on the beauty of the Lord Jesus. I mean, we've already done that, haven't we? The beauty of his sacrifice, the beauty of his selflessness, the beauty of his spotlessness, his blamelessness, his holiness as he offers himself for us. But I also want to extract from these verses six other manifestations of the beauty of the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to go through these rather quickly. I'll pause and elaborate and develop one or two. But overall, we're going to, we're going to make pretty good speed as we, as we expound these and meditate upon these together this morning. So for number one, to begin with, Christ's beauty in these verses is seen in his consecration, consecration. That's not my word. That is a word that the Lord Jesus himself used in his high priestly prayer. Look back at chapter 17, verse 19. And for their sake, the sake of his people, those whom the Father has given him, I consecrate myself. That is, I set myself apart. For what? For the cross that they also may be sanctified in truth. Well, in the first four verses of of John 18, we see the Lord Jesus consecrating himself. It comes out in two little phrases. The first, beginning to read in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out. Why? He's not looking to hide, folks. Uh, He's not looking to avoid trouble. He's not looking to run from his enemies. What is he doing? He is going to the appointed place. He knows to where he is going. And he knows why he is going there. He went out. Now look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. He does not run away. He does not fall back. He comes forward, knowing what has been ordained by God before the foundation of the world, knowing the humiliation and the suffering that he will experience at the hands of men, knowing the cup, the wrath that will befall him at Calvary's cross, knowing it all, having it all in clear view, he moves forward, embracing the cross. I mean, think about that. It is wonderful. If I knew if I knew someone was waiting in a certain place to do me harm, what would I do? I wouldn't go to that place. Surprise, surprise. I remember, I think it was the fourth grade, fifth grade, a fellow named David. I remember his name. We were actually good friends after this. But he wanted to fight. For some reason, he wanted to scrap. So Stephen... After school, behind the ball diamond, we're going to have it out. Guess where I wasn't after school? (laughs) Behind the ball diamond. Next day, Stephen, after school, we're really going to scrap. On the soccer field. Guess where I wasn't after school? On the soccer field. You get the idea. Omniscience, for me, if I had omniscience... I would avoid every pain, every iota of suffering, every problem, everything and anything that ever threatened me. Christ's omniscience, he uses it for for this rendezvous that he has with suffering. Here we see the beauty of his consecration, do we not? That he is the obedient son of God. He is the obedient servant of God. And even with that suffering in full view, even with that cup, even with that cup in his mind's eye, even as he contemplates that cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He comes forward. Oh, the beauty the beauty of Christ's consecration. We see, secondly, Christ's beauty in His majesty. Verse 5, they answered Him to the question at the end of verse 4, obviously, whom do you seek? They, these are the the soldiers with their weapons and everything else, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they answered Him, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to them, I am. Now, I'm just going to say I am because the word He actually isn't in the Greek. It is simply I am. It is that phrase, ego, I me. It is that phrase that Christ first employs back in John 10. Before Abraham was, I am. It is a declaration of his eternal Godhead. What is the response? Judas who betrayed him, still in verse 5, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Why do they fall? Are they amazed? Are they amazed by the fact that he comes to meet them? I mean, normally, fugitives and criminals, uh, they have the nasty habit of running away. (laughs) But this one actually comes forward to meet us. Are they awestruck? Are they amazed by that? Are they nervous? A little fear and trepidation. Uh, They had heard some of the rumors, some of the stories that this man, Jesus, had healed a blind man, had healed a lame man, had raised a dead man from the dead. Uh, Judas, one of his disciples, is now among them. Perhaps they had a conversation with Judas. Hey, Judas, we heard some of these stories, pretty wild stuff. And Judas' response, no, no, all true. I was there, I saw is there, this, is there this fear, perhaps, this anticipation of what the Lord Jesus might do to them? Perhaps are they, are they anticipating a struggle? We've dealt with false messiahs in the past. And normally they gather soldiers in an armed band around them. And if, and if we confront him now and, and his back is against the wall, his followers are going to come out and there's going to be this great struggle. Is that why they fall back? No, they fall back upon hearing those simple words. I am. It is the majesty of the Lord Jesus. And as they are overcome by his eternal and his essential Godhead, they cannot help but grovel before the eternal I am. John Calvin, let me share this with you quickly. In, in, in his commentary on this verse, writes, In the garden, Jesus stood as a lamb, ready to be sacrificed. His majesty, so far as outward appearance was concerned, was utterly gone. And yet when he utters but a single word, his armed and courageous enemies fall down. And what was that word? He thunders. No fearful word of damnation against them, but only a reply. I am. What then will be the result when he shall come not to be judged by a man but to be the judge of the living and the dead shining in heavenly glory accompanied by his angels. Friend, if you are here, if you are not a believer, please understand that that is a day reserved for you That if Christ in his humility, if Christ at the time of his incarnation with a mere word can drive this crowd of soldiers to the ground, what will it be to stand before him without your sins forgiven and to behold him in his heavenly glory, surrounded by myriads and myriads of angels, And have him ask you, for what possible reason should I allow you into my kingdom? I dare say not a word will issue forth from your lips. You will be too busy groveling on the ground before the unbridled majesty of the Lord Jesus. Oh, what it will be like to appear before Christ. And to hear him say, depart from me, for I never knew you. If this simple phrase, I am, spoken on that night, during that moment of his humiliation could have such an impact on these hardened war veterans, these soldiers, then what will it be like to stand before God, the Lord Jesus, in his unbridled glory, and hear him pronounce that word of condemnation. Depart from me. For I never knew you. Sinner, think on that. Oh friend, give that some thought. That's not something to be trifled with. That, that, that is a matter of utmost importance. That must be a priority. Believe in Christ now or perish for eternity. There, there is no alternative. There is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. And it is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the beauty of His majesty. Consider thirdly with me the beauty of His authority. The beauty of His authority. Verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, Let these men go. Who are these men? They are his disciples. These soldiers are under no obligation to let the disciples go. As a matter of fact, you would think that at Christ's suggestion of the the notion, that they would react negatively. No, we're here to arrest you, anyone associated with you. Let's take them all. And yet even here at this, this moment of his betrayal, The moment at which Christ is about to set his face to Calvary's cross, this moment of his deepest humiliation, even here we hear in his voice this resounding authority, let these men go. And this is quite startling. What does Peter do? Peter takes out his sword. I don't know what he's thinking. He cuts off Malchus's ear. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take off one ear off of each of these men and just show them what's going through his mind. I don't know. But you would think after Peter draws the sword, swings it, cuts off someone's ear, that would be it. Wouldn't you? That they would arrest Peter. They would arrest James. They would arrest John. They would arrest Matthew. All of them. That's it. We're rounding up all of you. You're all going with us. But here we see the authority of Christ. It is a a situation, it is a scenario as it unfolds that it almost seems like it's beyond Christ's control, but nothing could be further from the truth. Even here we see His control, His authority. And we see it clearly as it it comes through in this one statement there. If you seek Me, verse 8, let these men go. The beauty of Christ's authority. Now consider 4th. The fact that Christ's beauty is seen in his goodness. Verse 9. This was to fulfill. What was to fulfill? What he just said in verse 8. Let these men go. So the fact that the disciples are permitted to leave. John now adds his commentary. This. What just happened there? The disciples leaving. The Lord Jesus protecting them by commanding that they be allowed to go their way. This was to fulfill. Fulfill what? The word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. When did he speak those words? Back in chapter 17, his high priestly prayer. Look there at verse 12. While I was with them, as the Son prays to the Father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. Now, how does this incident in chapter 18 fulfill that prayer request back in chapter 17? Surely, back in chapter 17, as we we expounded it when we were there, the Lord Jesus is praying for their spiritual preservation. He's praying that the Father would keep them from the evil one, that the Father would keep them from the world, that the Father would preserve them to the end. So how does this event here, the fact that the Lord Jesus commands the soldiers to allow his disciples to go, how is that an answer to what he prays in chapter 17? Do you understand the question? It's simply this. The disciples aren't ready to be arrested. If the soldiers had taken the disciples on that night, what would have happened to those men? The Lord Jesus knows they aren't ready for such a trial. They aren't ready for such an affliction. The Lord Jesus knows that if they were to face such opposition... If they were to face such a trial, it would crush them spiritually. The day will come when they will be ready. The day will come when every single one of them will face terrible, harrowing opposition and hostility. But at that point in their spiritual sojourn, they weren't ready. We see the Father keeping them. We see the Father preserving them. We see the good shepherd, as wonderfully described back in John 10, keeping, protecting, preserving his flock, unwilling to expose his sheep to anything that is beyond their capacity to endure. Oh, the goodness of our shepherd. He knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our frailties. And out of his goodness, he hedges us about. And he guards us, he preserves us, and he keeps us from those things which he knows would result in the ruination of our souls. Oh, what a wonderful shepherd. Oh, what a good shepherd as we see him even here on the night of his betrayal as he faces his darkest hour, as he, about, as he is about to enter into such agony, we see the good shepherd exercising such careful care over his sheep. Oh, the beauty of the Lord Jesus. The beauty of his goodness. Number five. Christ's beauty is seen in his patience. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, I love Peter, having a sword, Drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So let me just actually insert a thought as it comes to me here. John doesn't share it with us in this, in this account, but, uh, I think Mark and Luke do anyway. Matthew, perhaps. But what does the Lord Jesus do for Malchus? Heals his ear. Have you ever wondered what the soldiers are thinking? I was, I was, this was running through my mind this morning. Uh, chief priests Pharisees there they all are they're all they're already prostrate on the ground you know belly face down nose in the dirt i am they're overcome with the, his majesty and now peter steps forward he brandishes his sword off with the ear and now the lord jesus actually picks up the ear and heals this man in their presence what are they thinking oh spiritual blindness Oh, the darkness of man's heart. Oh, the depravity of man's heart. Apart from the quickening of the spirit. Apart from the illuminating and softening work of the spirit. You can present heaps and mountains of evidence before man. And he will never believe. The darkness of man's soul. The grip that sin has upon the heart. And the, the the evil that is so pervasive whereby it, it blinds the eyes and stops the ears from beholding the beauty of the Lord Jesus. Perhaps that's you this morning, for all I know. This is maybe sailing right over your head. The ears are stopped. Scales on the eyes. I hear what you're saying, but it's not reaching my heart. Oh, friend, understand why. It is your sin. It is the darkness of your own heart. And oh, your need for the illuminating power of the Spirit of God. Beg it of Him. Beg it of God to have mercy on your soul. and To remove those scales. and To remove what, 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 what blocks your mind from understanding and feeling the magnitude and the significance of, of the beauty of Christ and the glory of Christ. And yet even in the midst of all this, we behold the patience of the Lord Jesus. The patience with these soldiers and, and scribes and Pharisees who are so blind to what He's just done. His patience in dealing with Peter. Peter, Peter, Peter. His patience with Judas. Oh, His long suffering. It really begins back in the first verse. I made mention of this as I as I read the text for us, a very significant statement. I was actually discussing this with my father the past week. He was the one who pointed it out to me. I had missed it completely. Right there in verse 1, when Jesus has spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. Okay, so what? Move on. Extremely significant. You go back to 2 Samuel 15. 2 Samuel 15. And you find that exact phrase, he went out, three or four times. And you find those exact words, he went out across the Kidron Valley. Who? David. When Absalom rebelled, Ahithophel betrayed, and David became Israel's rejected king. He went out from Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. Coincidence? Not likely. Brothers and sisters, here we have the Spirit of God drawing a direct parallel between David and Christ, Ahithophel and Judas, that Christ is Israel's rejected king. Oh, the patience of the Lord Jesus. What he put up with. Oh, the long suffering of Christ. What he endured. Oh, the beauty of our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. And number six, finally. Christ's beauty is seen in his humility. That runs right through these verses. Reaches a climax in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Such humility. There is the depths of Christ's humiliation. That the creator becomes captive. That the sustainer of the entire created order is bound. That the one who rules over heaven and earth subjects himself to dust. Mere creatures. And here we behold His humility. Here we behold the depth of His love. Here again we behold His determination. His consecration. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Did you get all six of those marks of Christ's beauty? It is seen in His consecration, verses 1-4. to It is seen in His majesty, verses 5 through 7. It is seen in His authority, verse 8. It is seen in His goodness, verse 9. It is seen in His patience, verse 10 and 11. It is seen in His humility, verse 12. You are beautiful beyond description. Isn't that what we're saying? We've tried to describe it this morning. We've tried to describe Christ's beauty in the midst of betrayal. What should be our response? For the unbeliever, it's obvious, is it not? A a glimpse, a glimpse of Christ's beauty engenders faith. That's what true faith is. Uh, To believe in the Lord Jesus is to see his beauty. It's to see who he is. It's the difference between false and true faith. Many people running around saying they're believers but have never tasted the beauty of Christ. They've never been overcome. The soul has never been overcome by the glory of God in Christ. No, to truly believe is to behold the glory of His beauty. It is to see Him for who He is. And for those of us who are believers, out of that faith, it is to live lives devoted to Him, is it not? Isn't that what it requires of us? It's to live lives set apart to Him. It is to live lives, the principle of which is our love for Him. The purpose of which is to express our love for Him. The goal of which is to to give faith legs, so to speak. So that it is expressed in every word, every thought, every deed. As I was preparing at least a portion of this sermon a couple of weeks ago, I was flipping through a couple of books that I have that are in my office, and one book in particular caught my attention. And something the author had written in here and, it, and it, in there and it, uh, it, it, it grabbed my attention. And uh, the weightiness of it, it really struck home. He he took a couple of excerpts from uh, the obituaries from a newspaper. Listen to these obituaries from a from a newspaper a couple of years back. If this doesn't depress you, I don't know what will. She enjoyed TV, especially Jeopardy. That's sad. He enjoyed bingo. Coffee and toast in the morning at local restaurants. Friend, is that your life? Is that my life? No. To behold the beauty of Christ is to be enraptured with his loveliness. It is to love him with every fiber of our being, and it is to live lives wholly devoted to him. We are attracted to what we perceive as beautiful. We actually move toward what we think is beautiful. Nothing different when it comes to Christ. True beauty. True beauty is that which most closely and most perfectly mirrors the glory of God. Well, that can only be the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask of You this day that You would give us a, a greater glimpse of Christ. That You would truly impress His, his character his person, his work upon our hearts. We pray that he would be our all in all. We are so so prone to to distraction, so so easily led in the opposite direction, Uh, so quickly enamored with other things. We pray as we have opened and contemplated this, this text from your word this day, that our hearts have indeed been drawn closer to Christ. We pray that this would be made evident in our lives. And we ask it for your glory. And we do so in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.